Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Cumulus Station. Now, 1045 The Zone's nonstop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. This is the Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. Presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. Blessed to have you as a part of my audience. My name is Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. We'll get into a couple of interesting things tonight. Some things I wasn't able to talk about yesterday as we talked so much about the Anthony Davis to the Lakers trade. There might be more of that tonight. But... Didn't get to talk at all about the U.S. Open, so we want to discuss that from a couple of different angles. And this Houston Rockets story is where I want to start off tonight. And I also want to talk about Pixar in the final segment and sequels that don't need to exist that continue to be churned out, and some that do, including one that I saw last night, which I won't go into any detail on, of course, other than just to say that it was good. But there will be a larger deal there, and I'm already planning right now a Pop 6 Pixar-specific couple of podcasts in a row. I think it might take more than one to get through most of these films. I wanted to do it this week, but I kind of have to watch the films again, or at least some of them that I've only seen the one time or whatever. So we'll get into all that. Need to also remind you, as always, I am blessed beyond measure. All reasonable and otherwise, hope you recognize that you are as well. So the Rockets have every reason to believe that they could be the favorites next year in the NBA in that the only team that's been able to knock them out of the playoffs over this last handful of years has been the Golden State Warriors, and the Warriors are not going to be there this time to do that. They might make the playoffs and face the Rockets in the postseason, but it's not they. It's not the they that you should be afraid of. It's not the they that includes a Kevin Durant. It might include a Klay Thompson. But I don't know that that would be enough in this case. And who knows what the rest of that team is going to look like by that point. And whether or not Steph is even healthy if they have not load managed him appropriately. So the Rockets, this should be the year for them to look at it and say, if the Warriors are the only team that can knock us out and the Warriors are not a team that's going to be a threat this year most likely, then this should be our all-in year. We've got two All-Stars and two Hall of Famers. We've got a good crop of role players. We've got a coach that has changed his system almost completely from what it used to be just to basically pacify the A-star on the team. And we've got a good general manager that has done a fairly good job at assembling talent and putting it around us. But, unfortunately, for Rockets fans... That's not how it looks because the Houston Rockets are exactly what many people feared that they would be relatively soon after those two guys, meaning James Harden and Chris Paul, got together in Houston. 
And what that is is not happy with one another, unable to play with one another, completely just the antithesis of one another out there on the floor and off the floor. And you could have predicted this because these are two guys that have a hard time making friends in the NBA. You might not know that about Chris Paul, or you might, but this is what Chris Paul's MO has been since Wake Forest. Since he got into the NBA, he wears out his welcome with his teammates about a year in. Sometimes it takes two years, but by the end, they despise him. They don't like being around him. They don't think he's a great teammate. They think he passes the buck. They think he loves to point fingers and act like he's the only one out there actually playing hard, that he's the only one that cares about winning. And so now he goes to a team where James Harden has also always been the irritant. He's also always been the guy that no one seemingly has wanted to play with long-term either. And he has worn out his welcome. And so you've got these two guys who also apparently can't stand being around one another, and that's supposed to somehow be a mix to win an NBA championship. And it just seems like that is not the recipe to get that job done. So when you're going into as open an NBA as could possibly imagine, these guys are not, they should not be the favorites. They should not be near the favorites, as a matter of fact. Even though most people are saying, look, you still must keep them together. You can't break them apart. You have to do this. I've talked about this before. People do wear out their welcomes in every league and in every facet of life. I've talked to you about Doug Collins, the famous coach, the famous player from USA Basketball. Every time you see him on TV, you think that guy's going to be just an unbelievable coach. Why is he not on a sideline somewhere? He knows basketball so well, knows how to speak it. He's awesome. Then he goes and he gets a job, and two years afterwards, he's gone. Why? Usually it's because, one, his health deteriorates because he cares so much he pours so much into it that basically he, he gives through his mind and gives through his body to where there's nothing left and his heart starts to cause issues and he has to walk away. But the other thing is all of that intensity is so hard for people to deal with that his teammates, not his teammates, but his teams basically just have enough and they need him to move on by that point. Speaking of coaches, Mike D'Antoni there were negotiations, then there weren't negotiations, then there were negotiations again, and now they've stalled again with all this internal strife surrounding the Rockets. It's not Mike D'Antoni's fault that they haven't won the championship. This is not on him. He's done everything that you could possibly have wanted him to do in this case. James Harden came in. He is not an isolation basketball coach. He is a ball movement score within the first 8 to 10 seconds of a 24-second shot clock kind of coach. Always has been. That's what he was in Phoenix. That's what he tried to be in New York. That's what he tried to be in Los Angeles. And you get James Harden, who is an isolation, one-on-five kind of guy, and he changed his offense to make it fit. Mike D'Antoni changed the way he coaches offense to make it fit his superstar. He was flexible. And they've still gotten beaten by the Warriors every single year. And so you've got that problem. You've got a new owner in Fertitta down there. I believe it's T Tillman Fertitta. And he has not exactly given Mike D'Antoni a vote of confidence either. It sounds like he's giving every reason for Mike D'Antoni to want to get out of there. But he also said, I'm kind of disappointed that I responded in the press. I shouldn't have responded there. And that's true. 
Uh, yes, you probably should not have. He talked about a great extension offer for Dan Tony. He said this a few weeks ago. You may have seen it. It included a $5 million base salary and $1 million in incentives for each playoff round one. But guess what? That $5 million base salary is below the market value for most of the coaches in the NBA. So a guy that has taken them pretty deep into the playoffs most years since he's been there and has done all that you could have possibly asked him to do in this case, you weren't going to offer him market value for a coach of his stature. That, to me, is a slap in the face. That is a we're okay if you get out of town kind of thing. But the Rockets right now, you don't have to get along to win. We, I'm sure there are many instances of teams that we don't even know about that couldn't stand each other, but still were able to win. Shaquille O'Neal's been on two of them. He and Penny stopped liking each other after Penny started taking some of the headlines away from Shaq in the second year, the one after they got swept by the Rockets in the NBA Finals. And Shaq and Kobe famously didn't like each other. I guess they've mended fences now, but both of them wanted the credit. This was very much, this was a much more volatile version of what Seth Wickersham reported about the New England Patriots. I guess it would have been before last season began about how it was Brady and it was Kraft and it was Belichick and it was a struggle to see who deserved the most credit for winning. Who was most responsible for the Patriots dynasty? There's a whole lot of ego in sports. There's a whole lot of ego in sports media. There are a whole lot of journalists and there are a whole lot of opiners. There are a whole lot of radio hosts that spend much more of their time talking about how much better they are than everybody else than actually worrying about their own business. That's just the way that that's the way it happens. Pride gets in the way, the ego gets in the way. So I don't know how much of this Rockets deal is a is these two guys trying to take credit. It's mainly them pointing fingers and saying, it's my way that will win, not your way. Because Chris Paul doesn't play basketball the way James Harden does and vice versa. Chris Paul does like to pass the ball around. He does like that ball movement. He likes to have the ball in his hands a great amount of the time. James Harden will go isolation. He will just spot up and he'll do his step back and he'll do all of the things that James Harden does. And those two things don't mesh particularly well. That would that could have been first guessed before they even got Chris Paul. But you had to take that risk on somebody that I've always thought was a little overrated as a point guard when people were talking about how he's a top three guy all time and things of that nature. But it's just not. But Harden and Paul, this is listen, this is straight from ESPN.com. I read this article this morning. The news conference, this is featured, this is after a playoff game. The news conference featuring Harden and Paul following the Rockets' playoff opener started like so many Houston possessions. Harden got all the action while Paul served as an increasingly frustrated bystander. The first three questions were directed to Harden, who delivered 29-10 and and the blowout win despite the Utah Jazz drastically altering their defensive scheme to deal with his off-dribble brilliance. The fourth inquiry addressed both players, but Harden answered as Paul fidgeted with his beard and looked down at the box score in front of him showing his 14 points and seven assists on fewer than half as many field goal attempts as his backcourt mate. As the fifth question was being asked, focusing on Utah's unique approach to guarding Harden, Paul looked over at the Rockets' PR chief and then at his teammate. I'm out of here, Paul muttered, prompting an awkward chuckle and quick palm raise from Harden. A second later, a little more than two minutes into the podium session, Paul got up, patted Harden on his left shoulder, and exited stage right. 
that from the ESPN article that kind of laid this whole thing out over the past day or so. It's Tim McMahon's article. It's really good. You should read it. There's too much damn turmoil is the name of it. An unsettling vibe surrounds these Rockets. So there you have it. Paul still believes he's a superstar. And he is. But he's also an aging superstar that's no longer at the height of his powers. James Harden is much more the superstar on that team. And even though neither one of them has taken anybody to the promised land in the NBA, and they have been perennial failures, they at this point are the penthouse version of Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan before Kawhi got there, changed that, and then won them a title. They they are better than Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. Both of them are. But Chris Paul is now declining. He's been in the league for a very long time, and it's hard to tell somebody like Chris Paul that. Chris Paul would love to win a championship, but he also wants to be the star while he's doing it, and he can't be because it's James Harden's team. So I would suggest to you that more of this is on Paul than it is on James Harden. Right now, Harden is a far better player than Chris Paul. Rockets team source says it's always a little contentious when you have two alpha dogs. Ask the Golden State Warriors if they've ever had problems between their stars. There's contention there, but they know they're tied at the hip. That's from a Rockets team source. Right. He's trying to keep this from being more than it is. He's saying, ah, they're just two alpha dogs that want to win. There's contention, but they know they're tied at the hip. I don't know that they do know they're tied at the hip. This right here sounds like a lot of trouble. And you can apply this to any team in any sport that does have a lot of talent on it or does have two bona fide superstars. That's why these super teams are kind of amazing. Somebody has to be the number three guy. Somebody has to be willing to be Chris Bosh or Kevin Love. And it's not just dictated by how you play on the floor. You still have to have that mentality that it's okay for me to go from being an all-star in Minnesota where I'm the guy to being the third option on a championship-level team that's not going to see the basketball nearly as much and is probably going to average, I don't know, if I was averaging 21 and 12 in Minnesota, now all of a sudden I'm going to be averaging 14 or 15 and 8. Or maybe I'm still getting all those rebounds but nowhere near as many points because the ball's not in my hand as much unless I'm taking it off the rim, off of missed shots. Somebody has to sacrifice. That's the problem for Houston. Nobody on that team appears able to sacrifice. Their mindsets are still, I'm the guy. I'm the alpha dog. I'm the killer. Chris Paul is not the killer anymore. And so there is strife between these two that I don't think are the nicest dudes to deal with when it comes to their basketball. I'm I'm not saying anything about them in their real lives. I mean, Chris Paul's done a lot of charity work. He's done a lot of good things. I don't know either one of them. I'm just saying it seems like on the floor, their basketball attitude ain't real good. So in a year where the Rockets should be excited about what could happen, this is a story that comes out. That's not what I would want if I was Daryl Morey. We'll be right back. I'm the Zone. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can follow me there. This show is brought to you every night by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate, renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the rent estate company. So I was actually reading this article during the commercial break. And so I'm going to talk about this. Kevin Arnovitz wrote a piece for ESPN dot com early this morning it says let zion williamson choose where he wants to play next 
And so that intrigued me from the title, and I wanted to see exactly what it was about because so often we read the headlines and we jump to some conclusion about what an article is about and often miss everything that's being said and sometimes get the opinions entirely wrong and get the facts entirely wrong in the process. I urge you not to just retweet an article based on its headline. Actually read the content of said article because you just can't get enough from a headline to make you feel confident to trust what you're actually tweeting out. But this article actually kind of is about that. And it starts off by talking about, and I mentioned this on the show months back, at the Sloan Analytics Conference at MIT that happens every year. Adam Silver spoke to Bill Simmons of the Ringer and talked about how his league is full of unhappy people that all the players in the league, that a lot of them are more unhappy and are dealing with mental issues than in in any other sport, perhaps, and certainly at any other time in NBA history. Now, we have no idea if that's true. There could have been a lot of miserable folks in the 60s and 70s as well. But some of the things that were mentioned, social media, of course, which might be the reason I picked up on the topic as fast as I did and wanted to discuss it. We've mentioned Kevin Durant and how... He goes and he tries to reply to people that should have no impact on him at all about either how good he is at basketball or what a good guy he is or what a, whatever it might be. He's focused in on the wrong things. And it's not just him. There's a lot of athletes that get into trouble on social media. There are a lot of doctors. There are a lot of lawyers. There are a lot of construction workers. There are a lot of waiters. There are a lot of people you know that could get themselves into a lot of trouble on social media which is why I continue to say be real careful what you tweet and don't tweet very often, honestly, because future employers are scouring these things and they will find it. Even if it's 10 years ago, if you said something questionable, that could cost you a job. It could cost your son a job. It could cost your daughter a job. So you have to be real cognizant of the fact that the Internet is not in pencil. It's in ink. It doesn't go away. It's permanent. Even if you delete it, somebody probably saw it. Or somebody could find it if they needed to find it. So there is unhappiness. And then there was a couple of folks, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, came out and talked about depression. So I wonder what exactly this article was about. And it talked about how if you want to make players happy, one of the biggest reasons why players are not happy right now is that, quote, the vast majority of them are playing in cities for bosses with coworkers and on behalf of brands, they had zero influence in choosing. In the NBA, a first-round pick who shows promise is effectively under the control of the team that drafted him for the first seven seasons of his career. This means that in the most formative years of their professional development, the most talented men in basketball are given no agency to decide what most of us take for granted, where we will live, work, and put down roots in our adult lives. And I actually talked about this after Zion was set to go to the Pelicans when the Pelicans got that first pick and people were saying, well, what's he going to do? I said it's kind of crazy because this is sort of the only place, the only business where you can't pick where you go. You can't pick who you want to work for. Your rights are controlled by someone else. A doctor comes out of medical school and he can decide where it is that he wants to go of whoever is willing to offer him a job. The best lawyer can come out of Harvard or Yale and usually pick his spot because everybody wants to go after that guy. But the best college basketball player or the best college football player comes out and it's whoever you know pulls the ping pong ball right or had the worst season the year before and has the opportunity to take them on. 
lot of times the reason they had the worst season, unless they were tanking intentionally, is because they've made a lot of mistakes or they have really bad structure in their front office. So it isn't necessarily the best situation for someone to come in. But it's the only way that you can keep from the same teams being at the top every year, even though that turns out often, especially in the NBA, it still turns out to be similar teams. We see a couple of teams emerge here from this cycle or that cycle, and maybe that's enough. But most of the big players remain the big players for a long time. But it doesn't seem fair in some ways, and it also seems crazy that we just accept that this is the way that it is, that no one has really challenged this before. This article doesn't necessarily talk about challenging it from Zion's perspective, but it talks about how there's something called the match, which I had not heard of before reading this piece. And it's basically talking about it's something that that came about through the National Resident Matching Program. And labor economists have been using this to talk about finding ways to assign talent to employers who need it. So let's say you graduate from medical school and 100 other people graduate with you. So all, all 100 of you rank where you would like to be resident physicians from top to bottom, from 1 to 100. This is where I'd like to be most, and this is where I'd like to be least of this 100 before you go any lower. And then the medical institutions also rank the graduates that they want to hire in order of 1 to 100 on that list. Then they put that through an algorithm, and then the matches are issued. So you get the most talented young doctors going to the the best institutions because there's mutual interest. So that doesn't sound good, right? Like you couldn't do that in the NBA because everybody would go to the big markets. They would go to L.A. or they would go to... New York, I suppose, maybe, even if they've been futile in terms of talent or in terms of being able to win, it's still New York. Or they go to Boston or they would go to Golden State or they would go to those kind of teams. You wouldn't have anybody. John Morant wouldn't pick Memphis, for example. And that's actually mentioned in this article about Morant and whether where he would rank teams if he had the ability to do so. But this is what's fascinating about this. It doesn't necessarily work that way in terms of not everybody's going to go to that top-level team. This redesigned match, which came about back in 1995, this is what the guy who created it says. The match is a system in which no applicant and residency program not matched with each other preferred each other to their assigned matches. So, for instance, the example that's given in the piece is Nasser Little from North Carolina. If he ended up with Charlotte, there is a mathematical guarantee that no team that he preferred ranked him higher than the Hornets did. Likewise, if Detroit ended up with Romeo Langford, it's certain that no rookie the Pistons liked more than Langford ranked Detroit higher than Langford did. So it kind of balances out between the two. Just because you want somebody, number one, doesn't mean they want you or that they have the space to take you on at the time. So the algorithm finds the best placement for both of you based on mutual interest and what's available at that time. So that's interesting. And then you go and you think about this. So John Morant's going to probably go number two. We're pretty sure he's going number two to Memphis. I'm on record. I think he'll be the best player out of the class. I think it'll be him and Zion, potential Hall of Fame level players. But I think Morant's going to have a better career. But Morant, would he want to go to Golden State and play behind that backcourt? Because he would be playing behind that backcourt. Would he want to go to Portland and play behind that backcourt? No. 
we talked about in the first segment. Nobody likes playing around James Harden or around Chris Paul. So would he want to go to Houston and join that mess? Probably not. What about Russell Westbrook? What about Ben Simmons? What about a lot of these teams that already have committed point guard spots that are taken up? And those are a lot of the better teams. So then if he was able to rank his preferred teams, what would he take into consideration? It wouldn't just be the market. Even if he bet on himself, he knows it would be a tough road to hoe to take out an incumbent at that level. Would Aaron Rodgers have picked the Green Bay Packers to sit behind Brett Favre for three years if he knew that that was the case at the first place? Or would he look at the best team that he could find that needed a quarterback quickly that wouldn't require him to sit as long? If he believed in his powers, there will be some guys, I think, that might want to sit for a couple of years and learn and come off the bench and be role players and kind of grow into the NBA lifestyle. So it would change things quite a bit, as a matter of fact. So it's an interesting thought experiment. I don't anticipate that this is going to get anywhere. The draft is big business. The lotteries have even become somewhat big business in the NBA. But Zion Williamson changes the equation because everybody says, all right, this kid is the biggest prospect coming out of college since LeBron James. He's also going to walk into the NBA perhaps with the most pressure on him since LeBron James. And he's going to New Orleans. I think that New Orleans is going to be fun to watch. They're going to be super young, but there's talent there with Lonzo and with Brandon Ingram and with Jeru Holiday, and they've extended Alvin Gentry, the coach, to leave him there, which is a good move because he's not responsible for everything that went down with Anthony Davis. He's not responsible for any of it, as a matter of fact. I think if you're the Rockets, you're foolish to let D'Antoni go, and if I'm D'Antoni, I would try to get out there or try to get out of there and find another gig because you would be snatched up in a second based on how well you've done and how adaptable you've been from your own system just to try and placate James Harden. I can't believe that they are allowing talks to stall there. I'll be surprised if he does leave. I feel like there's too many smart people to let him walk out the door, but at least the Pelicans aren't going to place this on Alvin Gentry. He's a pretty good coach, so we'll see how it plays out down there in New Orleans. But the article in terms of this match system is interesting. I don't think that it will happen, but I would love to do a thought experiment one day on this show where we look at this and maybe even look at it on an NFL level and take like the top 20 guys in the NFL draft and say, where, where do you think they would have wanted to play if they could have ranked their teams 1 to 10? And the problem there is we just don't know enough. Some might be homesick, might want to be closer to this or closer to that. Some might be in it for... I do want to be in the big market. Some might want to play from day one. There's a lot of factors to take into consideration. But the one thing that generally has not ever been taken into consideration and is increasingly being talked about more is where the players themselves want to go. And I do think that depression and anxiety and some of the issues that have reared their heads over the past 12 to 18 months in particular in the NBA are exacerbating these conversations. I don't think that they're going to go anywhere. But there's no question that this is an interesting thing to look at. I would love to know, and you would never be able to get him to say this. If he goes to Memphis and he's great, then John Morant would never say it. I'd love to know where John Morant would like to go. If he was able to look at it and take a couple of weeks to look at every team in the NBA and make decisions from 1 to 30 on where he thinks he might be best as a fit immediately. Would he want to try to supplant an all-star player? Or does he want to go somewhere and play a huge role right off the start, like Trey Young in Atlanta? 
Trey Young goes to Atlanta. Trey Young's rookie of the year candidate because there's nobody else down there and he's playing great basketball. Luka Doncic, perfect situation in Dallas. So where would John Morant want to go? Maybe Memphis would be higher than we think. That's what I think we might figure out here. Just like DeRozan decided, I'm not even going to go to L.A. Even though I'm from there, I'm not, I don't want to go to Los Angeles. I love it here in Toronto. I want to stay in Toronto. They didn't keep him, but he chose a smaller market over Los Angeles. That might have been a signal shift because of social media, which does certainly have its negatives. You know how I feel. It also has positives. You can be a star anywhere in the world. So it's intriguing to think about. I don't know where Zion or Ja would want to play necessarily. I know where they're going to play. They're going to play in New Orleans, and they're going to play in Memphis, at least for a handful of years. And I guess selfishly, I'm happy about that because it's really cool to have Ja Morant in your backyard, or at least in your state. We'll be right back. This is the Slash Podcast. Tuesday to you, Big Six, here on 104.5 The Zone, rolling right along. I'm Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. Glad to have you with us, as always. Thank you for joining me. So there's an article, another article, as a matter of fact, that I read yesterday from David Hale about Trevor Lawrence. And it talks, it's not about whether or not he should be able to go to the NFL draft right now. Some believe he should. He would be a top-five pick. Mel Kuyper said he's right there with Andrew Luck and John Elway as the most surefire, can't-miss prospects in the history of the NFL draft at quarterback. He'll be the number one pick, we think. The article is more about what's going to happen at Clemson for Trevor Lawrence and what's going to happen for his life over the next couple of years before he can become an NFL player based on the rules. And it's really interesting because he talks to Dabo Swinney. The article, the author here, David Hale, talks to Dabo Swinney. And Swinney talks about one play during the spring game in the second quarter where Lawrence is in the shotgun. He feels the pressure coming up the middle. He rolls left, looks downfield, evades a tackler, and then while evading, throws a ridiculous pass across his body and makes a throw 40 yards downfield. And Swinney says there's maybe five guys in the world who can make that play. And four of them have accountants handling all their money and contracts in the NFL. And then there's Trevor Lawrence. So we know how good he is. We saw this. We saw him dismantle Alabama. We saw how he played when he came in for Bryant and made it so that Bryant would need to leave if he wanted to continue to start. Trevor Lawrence is driven. And he's incredibly talented. And yeah, he's can't miss. And he's 6'6". And he's got all the tangibles to go along with the intangibles. Incredible arm. And just a great kid. But if you remember, what's the one thing you've seen from Trevor Lawrence over the last couple of months? It was a TMZ video of a pickup basketball game where Trevor got a little bit miffed at something one of the defenders was doing on the other side and shoved him down. And it was everywhere within minutes. This is what this article is more about. It's about the fact that Trevor Lawrence is still a teenager, still growing into the man that he's going to be ultimately. And he has so much pressure and so many eyeballs on him. And it's not that he doesn't want it. This is not lamenting the life of Trevor Lawrence. It's just trying to talk about how much further he still has to go as a human being to balance his life. There's an exit interview process at Clemson at the end of the year, as there is in most institutions. And Swinney basically just tells Trevor Lawrence in that exit interview, the light is about to get much brighter. 
That's the quote from David Hale in the article. I mean, they call this kid super elite. That was the term that Kuiper used about him. And so the light getting brighter means that everything that he does is going to be scrutinized on a completely different level. The word that's used in this piece, which I've never heard it described this way, I always use it in a, in a joking context about something else as an exaggeration phrase, but it talks about how there's an autopsy of his game every single time he steps out onto the field from now on, and any blemish they're going to turn into a superstar story about Trevor Lawrence because that's what they're paid to do. He's the face of Clemson. He's won a national championship already. They're the defending champs, and he's got this you know, glitz around him in terms of what he's going to be in the NFL. And they talked about Deshaun Watson kind of being a template for Trevor Lawrence because Watson was also sort of quiet and just went about his business as well, unassuming, laser-focused, some of the terms being used. But if you look and read about what it is that Trevor Lawrence is about, you probably already know. His faith is hugely important to him. So it talks about how when he wakes up in the morning, he'll spend time with his Bible, or maybe he'll spend an entire morning just reading Scripture. But that he he does like playing pickup ball, and he's learned to go fishing, and he started golfing, and he's got friends, and he wants to do charity work, and he's trying to figure out how he can improve the world. He's a dreamer. He's a teenager. We all have been there. And hopefully we don't lose the idea of trying to find ways to change the world in whatever it is that we do. And if it's not in our work, then hopefully... It's during some time when we're not actually on the clock, when we're trying to find ways to do that kind of stuff. But he's got a lot of things that he is trying to balance in his life. He's he, It can't be all football. But he said, look, I'm not going to sit out bowl games, even though he will probably be encouraged to do so if Clemson's not in a national championship situation. thing about it is, because it's Trevor Lawrence, they're probably going to be in a national championship situation over the next couple of years before it is that he is able to leave and go to the NFL. But he's gone and he's talked to his high school coach and he has said, look, I've got a platform here and I want to use that. And this is this is the quote. I feel like it's so easy to waste this time and platform we have. It comes so fast and you're not expecting it. He wants to help people. He wants to give back to his community. He wants to carve out a true vision of himself before a million outside influences decide his future for him. That's the big thing for me is really figuring out what I'm passionate about. What do I want the next step to look like? Those are the words of Trevor Lawrence. But the only thing that we've heard is that TMZ video. And that, unfortunately, is the other side of fame and responsibility and notoriety. To be Trevor Lawrence... I remember after he won the national title game, I had people say, man, I bet it's so much fun to be him on that campus. I mean, I bet it is, but I also bet it's exhausting. And it's a good thing that he seems to be centered in the right things, that he can probably escape some of that stuff and just be alone. Because this, there are a lot of people that they would crumble under the weight of this. No question about that, as a matter of fact. He said when he was in high school, he told his coach before he graduated, I want to be the best to ever play quarterback. Now he says that that's just cliche, and he just wants to make Clemson better, but that most people believe he has a limitless ceiling, that he's got every intangible, and he's got every tangible. We've seen all the intangibles in Tim Tebow without the tangibles as a throwing quarterback, and we've seen a lot of tangibles in guys like 
I don't know, who do I want to put here? Like a Jeff George or maybe a Ryan Lee for somebody like that that also hasn't necessarily had it between the ears in the way necessary to win at the highest level, at least on a Super Bowl kind of level. But Lawrence is trying to live his life as somebody that's not even 20 years old yet with a magnifying glass on every single word. And he said that he learned from that TMZ incident. He said, you know, I get intense. It's just competition. We're playing ball, all this kind of stuff. But he said, but I did learn from that moment that everybody is going to watch every single move that I make. His life, there is no privacy for Trevor Lawrence unless it is that time when he grabs the scripture and he goes somewhere or he sits on a porch somewhere as the sun's coming up in the morning and, you know, looks at the world that way. If he is out and about and people are there, he's going to get recognized and they're going to pay attention to everything he does. And because of his platform, he has the opportunity to do a lot of things no one else does, but he also doesn't have the opportunity to do some of the things that we sometimes take for granted, meaning I can go to the mall after I leave this show here tonight, or I can go, you know what, tonight I'm going to see Vampire Weekend at Ascend with my girlfriend and we're going to have a great time out there. And by the way, if you see me out there, come up and say hello. We'd love to meet you. But I can do that. I can go there and I can tell you this on there, on the air. And maybe still, probably, matter of fact, not just maybe, probably still won't have anybody say anything to me because I'm not going to be recognized necessarily in the public. We take for granted the value of that. I can go to the movies and screen Toy Story like I did last night and just kind of blend into the room like every other critic and all the other people that are there. Maybe there's a few friends in there, but it's not some situation where I'm going to be mobbed. I remember going to see a film years ago in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and Bobby Petrino, who had just been hired as a head coach, came in to watch the film with his family, and they showed up like 10 minutes late. It was right before the movie started. It was during the last preview, and everything stopped when he walked into that room. And that's not even like a giant community, but everybody noticed Bobby Petrino when he walked in there. Now, if he had come in on time, maybe a few less would have, but the lights would have been up as well. The lights were down. I just knew it was him. Then someone said it, and then the whole room was paying attention to the fact that it was Bobby Petrino in there. So I think maybe we should stop. Think about Trevor Lawrence and just how stressful and, and pressure-packed his life could become. If he wasn't made of the right stuff, which it appears like he is, looks like he was raised well and knows the kind of man that he wants to try and grow into and also is not foolish or naive enough to think he's already that man. But we need to value our anonymity to some extent. While we're so worried about our follower counts in one direction, maybe we should be so thankful and I, you know, I can praise the Lord that my level is what it is and it is no higher because I can actually live my life the way I want to live it without a camera in my face every five seconds. And I'm 40. I'm a man. I'm 40. This kid's not even 20 yet. Can't even imagine what his life looks like in both a positive context and potentially a pitfall context. Food for thought. We'll be right back. This is the Big Six. The Zone. Second of the program tonight here on the Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to helping homeowners benefit from the rental boom by renting their homes the easy way. Renters Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. I'll be in on the wake-up zone next couple of days, so you can hear me with that crew from 6 to 10 a.m. here on The Zone. 
you know, I just read this article at the Ringer that uh, Kevin Clark wrote talking about Aaron Rodgers being NFL commissioner for a day and what he would do. Aaron Rodgers is a pretty smart guy. I might not be the biggest fan of some of the things that he does, but a lot of what he says in this article is fascinating. I'm going to parse it and maybe put it together and we can talk about it in a couple of days. I don't want to just try and skim over it and talk about it now, but it's definitely worth your time. I might tweet it out from at jmartzone. I saw Toy Story 4 last night. I'll write about it uh, probably tomorrow. It should be up at some point on Wednesday. It's possible it'll be Thursday, but it'll be before it actually releases, so you'll have a chance to read it in advance. And as always, with an advance review from me, you will not get a spoiler at all at 1045zone.com slash big6blog. I have no interest in spoiling things or ruining an experience that I know you couldn't possibly have had yet. Uh, maybe I'll do a spoiler review later, and we'll do a podcast about Toy Story 4. But got me to thinking about cash grabs and sequels. Men in Black International came out last week. The reviews were terrible. I had a screening invite and passed on it. Just didn't care enough, quite frankly. And that series has never meant all that much to me before. But even though some people enjoyed that film, did it need to exist? Well, it made some money. But that doesn't necessarily justify its existence past that. So there was a fear that this time, Toy Story, look, it ended great in three if you just end the film there, you've done yourself a good job. The, the trailers for Ford didn't make it out to be anything particularly special, but I was still excited about it because I'm always excited about Pixar films. Other than Cars 2, and to some extent Brave, even though Brave is fine, those are really the only two I point to and, and did not think were standout films. Now, there have been years where the Pixar film has won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars, and I would have gone with something else, Wreck-It Ralph being one of the prime examples of that. Not the only one, but one of them. And then there have been years like Up and Inside Out and the original Finding Nemo and the list goes on and on where not only should it have won, it could have easily been in the best picture category. And sometimes it was. I mean, Up is as good a film that came out the year that it did as anything else. And Inside Out is absolutely tremendous. So Toy Story 4, I just wanted it to live up to the standards that the first three films had set. And so I'm here to tell you you can rest easy. It's a tremendous film. Pixar gets it right again. There's tears in the theater. Doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal. There's just there's something about these Pixar films that gets everything right. They strike the right emotional chord. They leave you feeling good about your family, your loved ones, even people you don't know. It's just it's a positive reflection of society. And there have been so many of these films, and they generally follow the same pathway. But they've done a good job with these Toy Story films, and 4 takes a narrative turn that you don't necessarily expect it to take fairly early on, and it changes what the film is while most of the characters still remain true to themselves. I had one person write me, Michael Burgett, who is a, a, a frequent listener of this show and Squared Circle Radio and many others on this station, and... You know, he said he was worried about the Bo Peep character. And I, I replied to him and said, yes, yeah, she changes. But she had to. And you'll understand when you see it. Things don't just happen that make no sense. Cars 2, they went political and tried to talk about ethanol. And that was a huge mistake. But that is a very small blip in an otherwise great trend for Pixar, which is when you pay money to go see a Pixar film or when you purchase a Blu-ray or purchase a digital copy or just give of your time for a little while to watch a Pixar film, you will be rewarded. 
because these guys know what they're doing and they understand what entertainment is supposed to look like. Wholesome, family-level entertainment that'll make you laugh. It'll also make you think, and it will make you consider how maybe you could treat people better in your life. I always feel like we're in a good place after I watch a Pixar film. And I know that that's not always the case. You can go see a John Wick or you can go see all these things. And there are different reasons for entertainment. But I think that there is a a definite spot. And there's a lot of Disney in me right now because I went to Disneyland a few weeks ago out in Anaheim and had such a good time. And, and it was cool just to, to be a kid and walk around and Pixar Pier and Cars Land. And uh, even with the Guardians of the Galaxy and Star Wars and Space Mountain, all this stuff. Like there's a there's a charm there that never gets lost. Pixar to me has been relentlessly good at giving us positivity and entertainment that universally appeals no matter what age. I'll see you on the Wake Up Zone next couple of mornings. Looking forward to it. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless and good night.